You are listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 70. Today we're asking the question, is OHS management a profession? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's Drew Ray, I'm here with David Proven. We're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. In each episode of the podcast, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety, and we have a bit of a look at the evidence surrounding it. And every 10 episodes, we give ourselves permission to talk about some of our own research. Today we're going to be talking about a paper that David was part of and I wasn't, so he's going to be the expert. David, what's today's question? So Drew, we're going to reference a lot of the Australian context for the for the profession during this episode, and it would be really great to hear from our international listeners whether you feel like the context that we describe is also applicable in your country as well. But when I talk about the paper, it was specifically a paper on the OHS profession in Australia. And so I think personally, in my experience working internationally, that many of the issues uh, are consistent in in most of the developed world. But you know, I'm sure that there's some nuances with some of the individual criteria. So Drew, I thought we'd just go through a bit of history of the profession in Australia and also the history of you know safety more broadly and how it has shaped the profession. And I might get your thoughts on, on the way through, but this might be a little bit sort of dry, but I think it's useful context because not often we think about you know what's occurred over, over the past that's uh, shaped and, and created, if you like, where we are today. So look, regulation of safety in Australia commenced largely in the 1850s uh, within the coal mining industry. And this was directly in relation to some investigations and reviews that were done into coal mines in England. And I think specifically through the South Shields Committee, which was formed sort of a decade before this legislation got passed in Australia that I know that you're quite familiar with. But then not much happened in safety for about 100 years until the post-World War II establishment of a number of associations to sort of focus effort on health and safety, both in Australia and around the world. So we got IOSH, the Institute of Occupational Safety and Health formed in 1945. We got the WHO, the World Health Organization, formed in 1948. And what is currently the AIHS, or the Australian Institute of Health and Safety, which was formed as the Accident Prevention Group in 1949. So we really see once it was the formation of these uh, these bodies and associations which really start to drive a, a dedicated agenda within within countries. So, David, this is a fairly similar decision to the one you made in your own thesis, limiting the scope to generalist professionals and drawing this line between generalists and other types of safety people. And I think it's a really useful way of thinking about us, particularly when we're thinking about professional issues, because it gets us away from some of the more convoluted discussions about the relationships between safety as a profession and other professions. Safety engineers usually have formal engineering qualifications, which means that they're engineering professionals first and safety professionals second. And similarly with um, medical people or uh, psychology that have a sort of parent profession. And so I think zooming in and saying, well, we've got this whole class of people who they're not engineers, they're not psychologists. Safety is what they do. What sort of professional identity do they have is a very useful way of and a clean way of looking at it. And then we can sort of broaden out from that then to look at how does that then link into other professions that have safety in the name. And in 1949, Drew, the first specific education course was developed in Victoria for safety uh, safety education. I'm not quite sure exactly the scope, but it was a certificate program was th- that was then expanded to other states. But it was really the 1970s where we started to see this major shift in the management of OHS. And it was predominantly driven in Australia, but I think in many parts of the world by the trade union movement and the, and organised labour. So health and safety was becoming sort of a broad issue for the workforce and a broad issue for society. And the people who are exposed to those health and safety risks were really starting to form ways of getting organisational action around those, those health and safety issues. David, it's probably worth pointing out for our international listeners that Australia is made up of a bunch of different states. We have seven states. Most things related to health and safety are organised at the state level rather than at the federal level. But when we're talking generally about stuff across Australia, that's because as far as I'm aware, and it seems to be true from what you and Pam have written in the article as well, 
the way we manage safety has been fairly consistent between each of the states, largely driven by sort of organisations that stretch across the country, companies that do business across the different states. There's not there, there are local idiosyncrasies, but there hasn't been a lot of major difference in what health and safety looks like in the different states. Yeah, I, I I'd agree with that, Drew. And and so and so in the in the 1980s, we saw a lot of legislation come out, and there was Commonwealth legislation, like you said, Drew, across the whole of Australia. And then each state sort of, I suppose, published its own nuanced regulations. But it was heavily informed by the the Robins Review and the Robins style of legislation out of the UK. So it was it was very much consistent around the country in a lot of ways. And so we started seeing whole OHS departments form in in larger organisations, in government organisations. And then from about 2000 onwards, things start getting a bit murky for the profession, Drew, because we we started seeing these different safety approaches in organisations. Some continued their compliance focus, some, some expanded to safety culture and safety leadership approaches. And this demand for university education of safety people that really exploded in the 1990s seemed to disappear and in some ways cease. So, so by about 2009, 2010, a number of the OHS university programs that had commenced in Australia in the 90s were, were no longer available. And we sort of saw the Australian Institute of Health and Safety in 2009 develop and start implementing this national professionalisation strategy. And there were five sort of core elements to that strategy. And, and Drew, I might run through these because then these flow into when we start talking about professional criteria. So these five programs of work were, the first was about developing and maintaining an OHS body of knowledge. So a profession needs to have a body of knowledge. The second was having some education assurance standards through a process by which the Institute could accredit OHS tertiary education programs. The third was working with INSPO and working with other professional associations globally in defining the the knowledge and the skill requirements of of OHS professionals uh, within what what was published in 2015, I think, as the Global Capability Framework. The fourth was certification standards and processes for individuals to enable individual OHS professionals in Australia to be certified by the Institute. And then the fifth was establishing a career learning framework for the continuing professional development of OHS professionals. So that was sort of a five element program of work that sort of commenced in 2009 and has largely been uh, delivered by the Australian Institute of Health and Safety over, over the last decade or so. So David, just before we jump into the paper and the meat of it, I noticed that that list of five things seems to mirror the activities that professional organisations do for more recognised or more established professions. So this looks very much to me like it's called a professional strategy, and it really does sound like you know a strategy to make health and safety at least look like or have the same activities, the same sort of structure as activity as professions such as teaching or engineering or medicine or nursing. Yeah, I agree, Drew. I think it's heavily consistent with with a core professional strategy. And I think they're they're all reasonable things to do. And I think the next part of the podcast we'll see how effective it's 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 working out. So the paper today, Drew, that I titled I co-authored it with Pam Pryor. Uh, it's titled The Emergence of the Occupational Health and Safety Profession in Australia. I assume by now most of the listeners know who I am, but Pam Pryor AO, she was awarded the Officer of the Order of Australia for her services to health and safety. She has a very long and distinguished career in practicing safety and teaching safety and particularly in supporting the the health and safety profession. Uh, She's currently the manager of the OHS body of knowledge for the Australian Institute of Health and Safety. And we've also done a fair bit of work with Pam, Drew, you and I separately and and together in in supporting the authoring of other chapters of the body of knowledge and, and things like that. So the paper, Drew, was, it was published as part of a special issue in the Journal of Safety Science in 2019. So we've talked about special issues before on the podcast, but the title of this special issue was The Evolution of the Role and Status of Occupational Health and Safety Professionals Towards a Global Capability Framework. So this was a dedicated special issue of the journal devoted to OHS professionals, the status of OHS professionals and, and other factors relevant to the profession. It was edited by Andrew Hale and Dennis Hudson and also Pam Pryor, who was my co-author. And a number of countries as part of this special issue were asked to write a paper that described the current status of the OHS profession within their country through the application of a recognised professional criteria that we're going to talk about shortly. So I think 
through, there was about 10 or 12 countries that provided a paper similar to the one that that I provided for Australia. Yeah, it was a very interesting sort of special issue. And the interesting how you could sort of provide this standardised structure to people and say, you know, write a paper that talks about your own country and we'll try to make each paper look roughly similar by basing it around these same topics. And then just how very different each of the papers are in their tone and substance. Yeah, and I think there was also another drive. I think there was a number of other aspects of work associated with the profession that hadn't been formally published about the development of the global capability framework with INSPO and and a few other things. And I think actually drew my main ethnographic paper from my PhD research, which we haven't spoken about at the podcast. We might save that for episode 100 or something. That was, I think that actually, I'd submitted it to Safety Science about the same time. And I think it ended up being published in this special issue as well. So let's talk, uh, we had a little bit of a discussion before the podcast about how we'd handle this, whether we'd sort of go through each of the professional criteria and explain them, or just sort of interleave them with discussion of IHS profession in Australia. So I think what we've ended up deciding we'll do is we'll just sort of go through each one of the criteria, we'll tell you what the criteria are, and then we'll have a discussion about what the paper says about it, and maybe just some reflection on how that fits in with current thinking in Australia. Um, So there's three broad categories that we'll lay out in advance. There's a bunch of individual criteria. So, you know, what makes a person a professional? Uh, Collective criteria, what makes a group of people a profession together? And then external criteria from the outside. How do you tell if something is a profession or not based on how other people see it and how it interacts with other stakeholders? So should we leap into the individual criteria? What makes a person a professional? Let's do that. So... There's four aspects associated with the individual professional professional criteria in this model. And the first is role and career path. So a profession should have an established hierarchy. It should have some consistency in role titles and it should have a career path. So it should be clear how a senior person it should be clear how senior a person is in their career by their role, their role title, their responsibilities, where they sit in the hierarchy. So if we think about medicine, law, accounting, engineering, teaching, we sort of see the way that the hierarchies exist, the role titles progress, and the role functions change with with that seniority. So I'd argue, Drew, that this is not consistently the case for safety professionals. David, I think that this is something that definitely characterises professions, but it's hard to find a clean example of it. So if you think of something like teaching, you know that you sort of start off as an entry-level teacher, you become a senior teacher, you probably become a head of department. But then there's almost like a career track decision that people make, whether they're going to go into teaching admin or whether they want to stay primarily focused on doing teaching. And so, you know, you can tell from the job title that the principal of the school is the one in charge, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're the most experienced or most senior teacher in the school. You know, that person might have a title like Dean of Learning or something like that. They've decided to sort of go up there. And you know, another profession like um, medicine, There's a traditional hierarchy that splits doctors from nurses. But the fact that someone has a nurse title doesn't mean that they're not more experienced and in charge of the person who has a doctor title. And we've seen with the professionalization of nursing, in fact, sort of like separate career tracks that you can get to the same level of seniority, either as a nurse or as a doctor. And you've got different responsibilities along the way. So there's lots of professions where this can be quite complicated in its structure and confusing in its structure. But the sort of important thing is whether it's well understood as a structure, how it works. And that's what we're really lacking in safety. INCHPO, sort of the the international consensus, had this idea of almost like two tiers, professionals and practitioners. And you sometimes see that language used, quite deliberate deployment of the word practitioner or deliberate deployment of the word professional, which is similar to in engineering, the idea of sort of technologists versus engineers. But That's only something that the professional bodies do. As far as I'm aware, it's not something that really works in terms of actual career structure. You you see people who meet the qualifications for professional who are at entry level just out of university. And you see people who don't meet the qualifications for professional being the senior experienced person in charge of safety for a large organisation. Yeah, so I agree, Drew. I don't think it matches the um, career structure in safety very well. And I think we we could benefit from having a look at how the how the profession is structured consistently across different organisations. But we'll talk about why that might not be an easy thing to do with some of the other criteria. So the second criteria was that a profession should have a defined knowledge and skill base. So 
what this means is that you have a body of knowledge, like there is a domain, there is a, there is a body of evidence or, or literature or, or decisions and processes that are owned and, and understood best by this, the individual professionals. So for Australia, at least, we do have an OHS body of knowledge that's been progressively developed over the last eight years or so. So this body of knowledge is used to accredit tertiary education programs. It's used to certify individual practitioners. Andrew, while I think there will always be a lot of debate on the scope of the body body of knowledge for safety, what's in, what's out, what is the domain, what are the decisions that safe, that RHS professionals are best placed to make? I think in Australia, at least in regards to this aspect of the profession, we, we do have a foundation developed. David, I find this one personally a fairly hard thing to just wrap my head around how to think of it. So we've got this project in Australia called the RHS Body of Knowledge. And it's an attempt to sort of encapsulate and put in place almost like a grand textbook of things that safety practitioners should know, at least a sort of minimum standard of things that they should know, presented in an easy-to-consume form. But that's not really what the professional literature means by a body of knowledge. That's almost like a very overly literal manifestation. We need a body of knowledge, so here it is. Whereas in other professions, the body of knowledge is much more nebulous in concept, but much more certain in content. So like there's there's no way where you can say, you know, what is current medical knowledge? Can I go and see the body of knowledge, please? What shelf is it sitting on? But on the other hand, most doctors would have a much better idea of what is true and not true compared to safety professionals arguing about what is true and not true. And most doctors would have a much better idea of what is the sort of minimum required medical knowledge for any doctor compared to the safety profession, what is the minimum required knowledge for any safety professional. So I think in that sense, we don't have, we've got this wonderful project called the body of knowledge, but in the professional sense, we don't have a stable body of knowledge. We have a really contested body of knowledge that's almost cyclical more than a sort of steadily progressing and growing body. And that's one of the real challenges if you want to create sort of gateways to entry and say who is and isn't a safety professional. You can't really do it based on what's the minimum knowledge that a safety professional holds inside their heads. What do safety professionals know and believe? We argue about that. We don't have a consensus. Yeah, I agree, Drew. I think, and and part of me all, with this would, all, would also have to debate that it's because of the transdisciplinary nature of safety Safe, it's very hard to know what is actually the body of knowledge within safety, if for nothing else, just an understanding of the partial bodies of knowledge in a whole range of other disciplines. So there's many things in our body of knowledge, which are actually from the psychology body of knowledge or the engineering body of knowledge or the chemistry body of knowledge or organizational institutional kind of theory body of knowledge. And all of that together is directly relevant for a safety professional in their role, but it's also not really our domain. In terms of the 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 knowledge, you know, man, managing the knowledge base of that domain, and I think that is the real challenge that safety has faced in being a profession. Is it would be so so neat if we just said, look, safety is a specialty of engineering. We're going to adopt all of the existing frameworks of engineering, all of the existing education, and we're just going to create this special separate separate area, which is safety. It's a subspecialty. But if we did that, we would lose out on this huge amount of stuff that safety professionals are expected to know and to do, which is not engineering, which isn't in common with other engineers, which possibly even has different ethics, as we'll get onto in a moment. So, you know, we have this neat solution which doesn't work and this messy solution, which is to treat safety as a separate thing that is sitting in the middle of these other professions that it might almost belong to, but doesn't quite fit. And I think perhaps uh, I'd sort of test this with you, Drew, but my thought is that if you strip all of the knowledge base of a of a, and skill base of a safety professional, I can almost point every single part of it back to a parent profession, whether it's training, whether it's risk, all those things. Probably the only one that we could keep a sole claim over would be incident investigation may be the only one that we could have some kind of claim over from a safety incident investigation point of view. But even that is a bit nebulous when it comes to engineering root cause investigation and things like that. So it is it is really hard to know what's, you know, one of the tests for this is sort of a, a term that came up in the professional literature due called claim over decisions. So every profession should have a claim over certain decisions. They're decisions that that profession is best placed to make above anyone else. So when it comes to like engineering design, 
you go to an engineer. When it comes to medical diagnosis, you go to uh, a doctor. When it comes to the treatment of accounts, uh, the financial accounts of an organization, you go to an accountant. And so the question, the open question that I'd ask is, what are the, what are the decisions in an organization that the OHS professional is better placed to make than any other person in that organization? And the body of knowledge should be associated with those decisions. David, I really like that test because I think it, it gets at the heart of what does make safety genuinely different. So if you look at teachers, you can look at plenty of things from other domains that teachers need to know. Your teachers need to know their topic area, which clearly doesn't come from teaching. It comes from mathematics or studies of English literature or history or languages. Teachers need to know psychology. That clearly doesn't come from teaching. That belongs to the field of psychology. Teachers need to understand social in interaction. That comes from sociology. They need to understand you know, administration of large organizations. But at their heart, teachers still have these particular decisions that are exercising their professional judgment as teachers. And they bring all that other knowledge to bear specifically to the problem and domain of teaching. And I think you're right that there's very little that safety professionals do that fall into that category. And the times when we do it most, we're not even making the decision. We're advising someone else to make the decision. And so that makes it really difficult to then lay claim to what is the specialist knowledge we hold. And I think, Drew, even that, yeah, so, so I think the, the body of knowledge or, or that domain should be referenced to those decisions or those pieces of advice that the OHS professionally genuinely best paced to make or to provide for their organisation. I was actually going to quickly move us on to the ethical code of practice, because I think this links in actually really quite closely, given that, you know, you can think of ethics as how do you make decisions properly? So we should be clear here that there are existing codes of practice for safety. And in particular, the Australian Institute of Health and Safety has a clearly stated ethical code of practice. Dave, do you want to say a little bit about some things you said about it in the paper? Yeah, I think there is an ethical code of practice, although this ethical code of practice is only applicable for members of the professional association. So if you've signed up as a member, then you are bound by that ethical code of practice. But we know that somewhere between, somewhere maybe as low as 10, maybe as high as 30%, that's been generous of professionals, at least in Australia, are members of the professional association. And there's no reference to OHS professionals or no ethical code, and therefore no ethical code of practice enshrined in any regulation, in any legislation, sorry, or any legally enforceable processes. So by and large part, the profession really doesn't have any enforceable ethical code of practice or obligations. And there's at least no mechanism to revoke an OHS professional's ability to practice due to any ethical incidents or any ethical issues. I'm not, I'm not certain that that is as much of a deal breaker as the paper makes it sound. I think it is possible to have a strong ethical code of practice, even without enforcement mechanisms, because you socialise the code of practice. Fairly famously, for example, it's really hard to get struck off as a lawyer for ethical violations unless you have misused client funds. And um, things to do with money very quickly get you into trouble. But there are all sorts of other rules that lawyers absolutely treat as sacred that are really hard to actually have consequences for. And certainly there are no legislative enforcement of those things. Yeah, things like the cab rank rule, lawyers take very much to heart. They talk about, they think about it. Very hard to actually prove that someone has violated. Doesn't mean it's not real as an ethical obligation. But I do think that there's, the code of practice for safety is really nebulous. Even though it is clearly stated, it's really just a list of values that everyone could agree with, even if they're not safety practitioners. And if you think about things like, I mean, most of our listeners probably are not doctors, but they could probably state really clearly what doctor ethics look like. Everyone's heard of the Hippocratic Oath. Everyone knows that when you go and see a doctor that they put a lot of emphasis on respecting the autonomy of the patient. And it's the patient's own decisions about their care that matter. We know that doctors are supposed to do what's best for the patient in front of you, not for the medical system as a whole. We know that patient doctors can be reasonably expected to keep their patient's information confidential and not blab it even to other family members unless you want them to. We know what doctors consider to be important. Engineers, similarly, when I was trained as an engineer, we just had drilled into us this sort of order of priorities, you know, safety of the public comes first, you do to your employer comes second, your own interests come third. It's drilled into, you know, 
only perform services within your areas of competence. You're an expert in this, you're not an expert in that. The moment you get asked about that, you stop being an engineer. You, you want to hold yourself out to be an engineer, it's only in the areas where you're competent. You, when we're communicating, particularly about risk, we have to be objective and truthful. That's sort of like at the heart of what it means to be an ethical engineer. And you look at the AHS code of practice, it's like a set of values that talks about balancing different concerns. And I think that's fundamental to safety, right? Is safety doesn't put one thing emphasised over other things. Safety has to weigh up what is the long-term interest what is versus the short-term in interest. Do I speak up now or do I hold quiet about this one in order to um, be more important about that one? You, Who am I really representing in this situation? Is it the worker? Is it the public? Is it management? Whose side am I supposed to be on? Those are all like really difficult questions that safety people face on a regular basis and we don't have really clear rules to tell us how to navigate those situations. So Drew, are you advocating that we should have or that we shouldn't have? I am saying that we currently don't. <laughs> because I've, yeah. I actually honestly don't know whether it would be helpful or not, because I think most of these things are not black and white. You know, we, I, I'm, I'm guilty, I have to admit, since I've been working as an academic instead of an engineer, I accuse engineers of black and white thinking, because I think they can. I think, you know, when you're dealing with very technical problems, you can have very technical rules that wrap around those problems. When you're dealing with very social and organisational problems like safety people do, you can't have black and white rules about what's the right thing to do and then accuse people afterwards of breaking those black and white rules. Yeah, I'd love to have a go at it though. I think engineers deal with inside organisations, they deal with the same sort of complexity of budgets and schedules and engineering quality and even doctors, you know, we see with like, you know, autonomy of the patient and so... I, I still, in, in some of the discussions I've had with lots of OHS professionals, I still get a lot of value in going, okay, think about the, you know, always put the person exposed to the risk first. So a little bit like what you said, safety of the public comes first. I always talk about the person exposed to the risk being the primary customer of the OHS profession. And, and so when you're making decisions or taking action in your business, what does this mean for the person who's exposed to the risk? And I think we could do something similar all the way through that provides a really clear direction for how to think about it. And if we had that drummed into the entire OHS profession and was practicing in accordance with that, we might actually see see an impact. You, you know, I, I can imagine a different world where safety people did have those sorts of ethics. Um, but I think it would require, and, and I think you're right that we would be much more professional, but I think it would have to be at that level, like saying, okay, here are the order of priorities your number one priority is to the person exposed with the risk. That's black and white absolute. Your number two priority is to act as a faithful agent of your organisation. Your number three priority is to act as a representative of the safety profession. That would be fairly similar to the engineering obligations. But I think you know your own ethnographic work has shown that that is not currently how the role description of safety people plays out. And I think we would then really struggle with the fact that we don't have control over those decisions. The decision about the risk that the worker is faced is not ours. That's an operational decision. We don't have professional ownership of that. So if we thought of ourselves as professions like that, we would be in constant ethical conflict. If the number one obligation is to the person exposed to the risk and we can't stop the person being exposed to the risk, what is the reasonable expectation of us? Do all safety people become whistleblowers? Do we have to just constantly just keep resigning en masse until people start? Um, and I've, I mean, I've, I've literally seen that happen in an organisation. I've seen like four safety people resign from the safety manager job in a row because they felt that ethical obligation to have the hazard dealt with and it wasn't being dealt with. Um, and you know, the end result is just that the fifth person doesn't feel that same ethical obligation. Yeah, it is a good point, this handoff of decisions and, and processes that maybe doesn't happen in engineering design, maybe it doesn't happen elsewhere. But you know, in operations, it, it, it definitely does. You know, engineers hand off decisions to operations managers all the time. I think I'd like to have a go at it. And I think the, the fourth, if we move on to the fourth criteria here, which I think is also a nice segue, it talks about professional status. So the fourth element of this individual um, professional criteria is called professional status. And I think this is really relevant to our conversation now, Drew, because it relates to the structural position of the professional within the organization and how well the profession is sort of referenced within within regulation and and so I think what we're talking about here is the, the reality that OHS roles and structures are extremely varied. You know, sometimes they're in operations, sometimes OHS is in human resources, 
often it's integrated with environment or security or quality or risk or compliance. And this feels very different to the way that other professions are structured within organizations. Like we have a legal department, we have a finance department, we have an engineering department, but there's no real um, consistent home or, or boundary around the OHS structures within organizations. And so there's also, we've mentioned there's no direct references to the OHS profession in regulations, nor are there any sort of obligations on companies to engage to engage OHS professionals in a certain way, in a lot of ways. So, so Drew, I, I really don't think that we've got a clear and consistent professional status. No, I, I agree absolutely with that, David. And I'm honestly struggling to see what the path is to get to that point. I've been watching with interest, within Australia at least, Engineering is still fighting for that professional status, um, certainly when it comes to the legislative side of things. I, I may get my information wrong here, but my understanding here is that there are still places in Australia where you can hold yourself out to be an engineer, that it's not a protected term in any way. I think Queensland is one of the few places where there are specific things that cannot be done except by someone who is a chartered engineer. But through most of, most of Australia, you there's no limit on who can provide that advice or make those decisions. And Engineers Australia has been fighting for a long time to actually get that sort of protected status without full success. But then on the other hand, within organisations, engineering definitely does have that status. You know, most large organisations have something akin to a chief engineer position, who regardless of where they sit within the hierarchy, they are the final arbiter of technical decisions. Anyone within the organisation with a technical decision can always refer it to the chief engineer. The chief engineer says no. The answer is no, regardless of other sort of management considerations. And it would be very interesting to have that with safety, to have a sort of safety person with that responsibility. Yeah, I've seen in a few organisations a chief safety officer, but mostly it's by title only, not by role, as it would be built into, into business processes like with a chief engineer. But that technical authority type of role would be would be a good thing to see in OHS. I I totally agree with you, Drew. So it, that's the individual professional criteria. So in summary, we talked role and career path, defined knowledge and skill base, ethical code of practice, and professional status. And I think what we'd say is there's some foundational elements in in those four areas within the OHS profession. But I think I'd conclude that it's um it's sort of underdeveloped when it comes to comes to uh, the criteria and, and and what it would take to be a, I suppose, to, to, to consider ourselves a, um, a profession. So Drew, we'll move on to the collective professional criteria. So here we start to talk about the profession more broadly, what it means to be a profession as a group of professionals. And so the first two criteria, professional organisations and professional entry criteria. So professional organisations are you know, organisations like the Australian Institute of Health and Safety and others that that support and advocate and coordinate the profession, and their professional entry criteria are those what are what are the minimum criteria required to gain access or or gain entry to the profession. So, Drew, do you want to talk about those two and how we might think about those two together in in a lot of ways? Sure. So, the sort of question I think at the heart of it is who is part of the professional organisation and to answer that question, you sort of need a clear answer to start with of what is the professional organisation. Um, in Australia, we've got a number of different organisations that are claiming to be the place that you should belong to if you're a safety person. The paper, so David, correct me if I'm wrong, I think you and Pam were a little bit modest in the way you represented things in the paper. I would go out on a limb and say that I think AIHS, what used to be the Safety Institute of Australia, is probably the premier generalist organisation. But I understand why you wouldn't want to claim that in the paper, because Pam, being a representative, um, wouldn't want to sort of like hold out and say, you know, yes, it's us. But, you know, safety people could also belong to the Australian Institute of Occupational Hygienists, the Human Factors and Ergonomics Society, the Australian New Zealand Society of Occupational Medicine, Australian Faculty of Occupational Environmental Medicine. Um, those are just ones you mentioned in the paper. I'd also add that Engineers Australia has specialist subgroups. Uh, weirdly, the Computer Society has the Australian Safety Critical Systems Organisation as a chapter of it. So there's all sorts of different places that you could belong to. And none of them have the majority of safety practitioners within that organisation. You, you estimate in the paper there's between 20,000 and I think it's actually 40,000 safety practitioners in Australia. We don't really know 
we're just going off uh, Bureau of Statistics categories. Whereas AIHS has sort of like between 4,000 and 5,000 members. So you take the highest number of one, the lowest number of the other, your sort of best case is 25% belong to AIHS. Your worst case is actually more like 5%. Um, and that's, that's not enough to create a closed shop because all these organizations are trying to get new members. The last thing they want to do is say, sorry, you can't be a member, you're not qualified, which means you sort of got this. It's not a catch-22, but it's a real trade-off. Either you put up barriers to entry and say safety work should only be done by recognized professionals, or you say we want to grow as an organization, anyone can be a recognized professional, just send us the cash. And either way, you end up diluting what it means to be recognized as a safety professional. Yeah, I think this one, Drew, is a genuine trade-off. And I think the the professional associations, there's there's no real need for safety RHS professionals to join their professional association. There's no there's no real advocacy need for the majority of professionals. There's no professional development requirements. There's no mandatory certification. There's 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 kind of just no need for professionals to engage with the professional association. So it does make it quite difficult for the professional association to get any sort of critical mass. And so when we talk about the professional entry criteria, I still feel like this is the biggest barrier to OHS professional status. And I'm probably going to upset some people with my next comments. But Drew, you know, I for one absolutely believe that we need some kind of minimum education or qualification or requirement of some kind to be an OHS professional um, or to have certain designations um, to do with OHS. Um, within the profession, even if it's not the entire profession. And I'm not necessarily saying here it has to be tertiary education or something like that, but I think without some sort of requirement, then it's very hard for us to think about our professional standards, our certification, and, and any kind of minimum level of performance of the role across the profession. And Drew, I kind of looked, thought about this a few times, and I can't think of another occupation that has the potential to impact health and well-being of people in society where there's no formal qualification. So you need a qualification to be a, a security guard. You need a qualification to be a personal trainer. You need a qualification to do nutrition or um, any of the allied health professions or even to be a financial advisor or, or any of these things. But you can apply for the safety manager of you know an airline or a mine site with not a single qualification of any sort and be perfect it would be perfectly acceptable for you to do that job as far as the profession's concerned and i just i just that i don't feel good about that david i'm going to agree with you for reasons that i'm not quite sure are the same as yours very often the moment people make that argument the debate gets into well what sort of skills and knowledge do you need to be good at a safety practitioner we get into arguments about people who have got degrees but no people skills or people have been working in the profession for 20 years and have got deep peoples. All of that is irrelevant. One of the sort of fundamental personal attributes of a professional um, that I don't think actually sort of makes the list of four things you have in this paper, but just a commitment to basing your practice off a body of knowledge and developing your own skills through education and continuous improvement is part of what it means to be a professional. And so even if you think that like tertiary education in safety is worthless, if you think of yourself as a professional, you should still be committed to getting that education because that's what professionals do. Professionals challenge themselves with ideas and knowledge that they don't currently have. Professionals don't believe that they already know stuff and don't need to know more stuff. And so everyone I hear fighting back against the idea of minimum education, the way they fight back just tells me they don't want to be professionals. Now, that might seem harsh. There are plenty of jobs that aren't professionals. There are plenty of good people who aren't professionals. There are plenty of fantastic leaders who aren't professionals. But part of being a professional means a commitment to your own education. And, and I think, Drew, we don't necessarily have to be. I mean, this, the OHS profession doesn't want to be professionals. There's, there's other occupations within organisations that also are probably quite similar, like human resources or information technology and, and marketing or corporate communications. There's lots of other uh, occupations that go on, but there's there seems to have been from a lot of the professional associations and the direction of, of, of the profession, if you like, to, to become more of a profession. And these are some of the, these are some of the difficult hurdles that we're going to have to get over if we if if we want to be professions like 
teachers, accountants, lawyers, doctors, nurses, or if we want to be occupations, then this is these are the challenging hurdles we need to overcome. David, I think there are still some people who might be listening to the podcast we haven't offended yet. Oh, good luck. So I, I, I just want to go. I just want to go a step further here. I, I think the AI, AIHS made a serious tactical mistake when they split things into practitioners and professionals. I agree. We don't do that in real professions anymore. There's no such thing as a teaching professional and someone we also let teach, but they're just a teaching practitioner. You know, there are teacher aides, there are teaching, there are like specialist assistants to teachers, but they are not teachers. They don't get to do the same things that teachers do. They do other different stuff in a school. And I think throwing out this bone to say, well, education matters, but it only matters if you're dealing with senior management. It only matters if you're dealing with strategic decisions, not if you're doing safety with real people. That undervalues the whole project of becoming a profession. If we're a profession, then we don't want to have safety practitioners and safety professionals. We just want to have safety professionals. Yeah, Drew, and I think, um, I think in knowing a little bit of the history secondhand, because I've asked that question as well, and I think, I think that was more of a compromise than a tactical mistake of trying to get 12 or 15 professional associations around the world to agree on a single framework. But I agree with you. And when you look through the knowledge and the skills and activities, there is not one knowledge, skill or activity where the framework says the practitioner needs to have more skill than the professional, which I, it, it, it actually doesn't make any any kind of logical sense when, when you look at that distinction and that framework. But I understand it was a, a political compromise as opposed to a, uh, a, a useful yeah, something distinction. Can become, something, something can be a political compromise and be a mistake. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, good point. I might move us on, Drew, for the one or two people that are still listening. So the third, the, look, the third collective criteria is around professional education. So this is that there, there needs to be professional education programs that exist. There, there is in Australia an accreditation pathway. So um, for the Australian Institute, there is an Australian Institute of Health and Safety has an independent OHS accreditation board. The first university level programs were accredited in 2012 by 2018. There were 12 universities offering a total of 27 accredited programs. Drew, I believe the Graduate Certificate of Safety Leadership at Griffith is one of is an accredited program. Uh, David, no, that is embarrassingly not correct. Not correct. Not correct. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if this counts as a conflict of interest. We we made a decision not to seek accreditation for our programs at Griffith due to the fact that we were offering something that we considered to be substantially different from the other OHS programs, and we didn't want to be in that same basket. Just, we didn't want to mislead our people who might come to us, and we didn't want to mislead people about equivalence between different things. But I think that sort of shows some of the difficulty in accrediting education. I think the hope was that providing accreditation would be a two-way street. It would improve the quality of programs, and it would help those programs market themselves to the world and to universities to help the programs become more established through this external recognition. And it didn't seem to happen. You know, the number of university offerings have decreased over time, not because they've been weeded out through this accreditation, but through market forces. And so, you know, accreditation, I think, actually helped with the marketing. It helped support them. It helped them survive, but it wasn't enough. They're just lack of consistent demand across Australia for education. But again, I think if we draw, I mean, what would be what would be interesting to do would be to draw a kind of, simplify this all down and draw kind of a fault tree because what you talked about there with industry demand, which is that there is just not the demand for university education in safety. And there's no demand because organisations aren't asking for university trained professionals. And because they're not asking for them, there's no demand and people aren't, you know, there's a few that go and get extra qualifications, but not enough to sustain some of these programs. You know, these university programs aren't getting 100 or 200 students a year like some of the other programs in their, you know, in their, in their schools. And, and so there's just no reason to keep those programs around. But there is an interesting statistic you had in the paper, a safe search survey that said that 54% of managers, 63% of national managers and 62% of general managers have university level safety qualifications. Do you think that's representative? Well, I it's hard to know what's representative and what's not because we know that we've got we've got access to five percent of the profession through the professional association. 
well, as members, we know that this survey is maybe surveying one or 200 uh, people who actively engage with a safe search remuneration survey. So these are generally mature, large organizations. And, you know, maybe they're not representative of the of the population of organizations, or they, they wouldn't be representative of the population of organizations either. So yeah, you know, this, this stat of half to 60%, 50 to 60% of senior safety people being tertiary qualified in safety. I probably don't believe it, but hey, that's kind of all the access to data we've got. At the very least, it does show that there are places, even if they're not universal, where there is a strong value being placed on education. These figures might not be representative, but they are certainly going up over time. Yeah, I agree. So Drew, let's move on to the final um, section, which are the external uh, professional criteria. Um, and then we can round out with a bit of a summary and and practical takeaways. So the first is legal requirements. So how does the law look upon the OHS profession? And there is currently no no legal regulations in Australia that regulate the OHS profession. So there's no licensing requirements, no registration requirements, no qualification requirements. There's no specific obligations placed on safety professionals, except just recently in one of the states of Australia, which has put a requirement on on the responsibility for people providing safety advice. And there's been a, an obligation for 15 years or so in, in another state in Australia that companies need to engage suitably qualified advice, but there's no advice around when to engage or what is suitably qualified uh, for that advice. And so that sounds like a pretty clear no to the legal recognition of the profession. How, how about societal recognition of the profession? So societal recognition. So this is where we think about what is the OHS professional status within Australian society more broadly. So if you go to a, a, a barbecue at a at someone's house and you say, I'm an engineer or I'm a doctor, and it's your turn and you say, I'm a safety or an OHS professional, the societal recognition is, is, is what is exactly that? What recognition does society see it? How relevant and important does it see the profession? How does it see the contribution that that's making, that that profession is making to the society more broadly? And Drew, I kind of see that the status, at least within Australia, is that the profession is probably regarded lower than other professions. Um, people will always have a story that's about how they see the formalization of safety management impacting their everyday life and how much this must be driven by the OHS profession and how much of a nuisance that we've become to everyone who tries to go about their daily lives in a normal and fun kind of way. So that would be my view. But what? how would you see recognition within society? David, I was, I was just imagining any other group of people having this same conversation. You know, teachers asking themselves, are we really a profession like those other real professions like doctors, nurses, engineers, safety? <laughs> I just cannot imagine safety being included in a list of professions that people would aspire to also be a profession. So we tend to get portrayed very negatively. Um, you know, it's not just at the barbecues in the media. Most people only sort of hear about safety after an accident. And what you usually hear is, oh, there were safety people, but they were undertrained, incompetent, possibly even said that things were safe before the accident happened. We don't see people wanting to come out of high school and be safety people. You talk to any safety professional, their origin story is they sort of got into safety by accident. And the only people I have ever talked to who deliberately got into RHS have been when I've talked to undergraduates in the current programs. And so, you know, these small programs, there are 10 people in the program and you talk to them and they say, oh, I decided to do this as a profession. But that's a very small minority of people in the profession coming out of high school aspiring to be part of safety. So, David, I think you've said there are only four undergraduate safety programs left. Well, at the time of the paper, and it, I mean, it may be it may be less, but I think there's there's four undergraduate programs left in Australia, only across two of the states, and almost so almost all tertiary OHS education occurs at a postgraduate level, and Drew, they're predominantly going to be with students who are already employed in OHS roles. Yeah, and I know a lot of people in those undergraduate programs are mature age or coming from overseas, they're not necessarily school leavers coming straight into the programs either. So Drew, we've talked about a bunch of individual, collective and external criteria about a profession, and we've sort of been up and down and offered our own sort of views. So let's do some practical takeaways. And I thought one of the practical takeaways that might be interesting for our listeners uh, is to, if you can get a hold of this paper, is to think about the application of this professional criteria just within your company. 
So you don't necessarily need to tackle the professionals profession as a whole, but you can start to ask yourself these questions about about the people in these roles in your organization and the definition of these roles and and the career path and the um, the entry requirements to be an OHS professional in your organization and and it would be a good exercise for you to do because I think you might find well if you have some gaps then the question becomes is is are you comfortable with those gaps in in the professional criteria within your organization David I really like that framing I, I think one way to look at it is professions exist from the inside and from the outside we can't do much about the outside as a practical takeaway but we can certainly do stuff about how we see ourselves as professions and um, so you know do our, do we treat ourselves like we're professionals do we focus on having a clear standard of ethics do we know what our ethics are do we have a body of knowledge do we approach our work as an evidence-based practice applying a body of knowledge to the local work um, do we seek to constantly improve our own education? Do we undertake continuous professional development? And I think, Drew, this allows you as a professional or, or within your organisation to, you know, focus on on your own quality and consistency of, of, of advice to, to approach your role and your organisation sort of with an evidence-based practice lens. And I suppose, look, sure, I hopefully the Safety of Work podcast, Drew, uh, helps in some way of that, but it's also not a replacement for some, you know, a, a clear OHS education pathway, which um, I'm not sure how well exists at the moment. And so I, I still think that's that's a lot of work that we need to do as a profession. So questions to the listeners from this week. I, I've tucked in a couple here. I'd be just interested in whether other safety, other safety practitioners think of themselves as professionals. So, you know, would you consider yourself to be a professional? Um, and where does that identity come from? You know, does it come because of the work you do in safety? Or do you consider yourself to be part of some other profession, you psychology, engineering, some sort of other professional identity? And then what sort of things make you feel more or less professional? What sort of things do you do that make you feel professional? What sort of things do other people treat you as that make you feel more like a professional? Um, but David, before you can get in, I'm going to throw the question of the week to you, uh, since you wrote the paper. Uh, we asked the question, is OHS management a profession? So the answer? Uh, it's a simple not yet from my perspective. And we titled the paper, you know, we, we in the conclusion of the paper, we talked about being an emerging profession where it'd be almost like we're trying and, and we're, we're putting in place some of the foundational aspects, but we just don't have established fundamental building blocks that we need to be a profession yet. But, you know, who knows? Thanks, David. That's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. As always, join us on LinkedIn or send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com. 